Good morning. All right, last week we began a new series called Hard Feelings. So this is Hard Feelings Part 2. We said that for some of us, the past 18 months have been very difficult emotionally. Um, actually, before 18 months ago, like there are just painful emotions that we experience because that's part of the human condition. Um, but these last, this last year and a half, for some of us, have been extra difficult, extra painful when it comes to our emotions. And so we said we were going to do this series where we talked about what the Bible says about worry, shame, anger, and sadness. Um, so worry, shame, anger, sadness. Last week, we talked about what the Bible says about worry. And today, we are going to talk about what the Bible says about shame. Say, so aren't you glad you came on shame week? Okay. So um, shame is an interesting emotion because there are, well, first of all, we live in a anti-shame culture for the most part. That is, we live in a culture that says shame is bad. Don't feel ashamed. You know, don't don't you know, feel better about who you are, don't shame her. So we mostly live in an anti-shame culture. And there are some people who believe that shame is something that is only and always bad. In fact, I came across a blog this week, and um, th actually I came across it a couple years ago, but I re-came across it this week. And this um, blogger, she, was, she wrote this, this article, and I don't I don't know for sure. I don't want to say she's a Christian blogger because I guess I don't know for sure, but she quoted Bible verses like Christians do. It kind of seemed to be like a Christian blog. And this is what she says, quote, shame has been around for a long time. We're familiar with it, but that doesn't make it good. Shame is never good for any reason. Shame is bad. And that is kind of an extreme way to put it, right? She says, shame is never good for any reason. And I don't think that I found like the one person on the internet that believes this. There are a lot of people who would say that, that shame is only and always bad. It is never good for any reason at all. However, if you look around, you will notice that there are some people who believe there are two types of shame, one good and one bad. Um, this is something that you might be able to figure out as you talk to people or if you read books that are on this topic. I assume that it will come up. Certainly if you like Google it and you look on the internet, if you just look, up, look this up, you'll see that there are people who talk about two different types of shame, and it's usually called toxic shame and healthy shame. At least that's what I noticed. If you put toxic shame versus healthy shame into your search engine, you will come across with a bunch of like Psychology Today articles and stuff like that. Okay, toxic shame versus healthy shame. So toxic shame would be the word that they're using to talk about the kind of shame that is damaging, that is poisonous, that is destructive to a person. And then healthy shame, or one website I saw called it a pr productive shame, is the word that they would use or the phrase that they would use to describe um, like the, 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 the feeling that you get that causes you to not do a bad thing a, a second time, right? So you've got toxic shame versus healthy shame. But not everybody uses these, this kind of terminology. There are other people that say it in a different way or, or talk about these things in a different way. So one thing that you might see, and I definitely noticed this, um, one person online pointed out that there are some people who use the word shame to refer to toxic shame, and there are people who use the word guilt to refer to the healthy shame or the productive shame. That when they're using the word guilt, they are talking about a feeling that people have, sort of a painful feeling that helps you not go do a bad thing a, a second time or a third time or a fourth time or whatever it may be. Um, however, they use the word shame to describe toxic shame, the kind of destructive, poisonous shame that hurts a person. So what you, and you, may, you probably can figure this out on your own, but I want you to think it through. Um, if your definition of the word shame is the bad kind of shame, then you are more likely to, to say things like, shame is never good for any reason, shame is bad, right? Well, of course, shame is never good for any reason, shame is bad, if you define shame as bad shame. Of course, shame is always bad when your definition of shame is bad shame. You following me? 
So um, the, the, the problem, I think, with um, dis- defining shame as always bad is that it will make certain verses in our English Bibles out to be quite confusing, okay? So when you redefine the word to mean something that's always bad, you're then going to come across that word or words like that word in the Bible translated from Hebrew and Greek into some English word like shame or ashamed, and you're going to go, oh, well, that doesn't fit very well. It almost seems like this thing that we know is always bad is something that the Bible sometimes says is not bad. That's confusing. How does this all work? So I just wanted to show you one of the reasons why I'm I'm not sure that we should use the word shame to mean only bad shame is because we're going to come across scriptures and go, well, how can that be true? So let me show you some of these scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 6 is where I'm going to begin today. Jeremiah chapter 6, starting in verse 13, says this. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is making profit dishonestly. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. So here, God is communicating that these people are messed up. They're wrong. They're wicked. They're doing the wrong thing. All of the people are. All of these people are making profit dishonestly. All of these different people, they are dealing falsely. They're treating this problem superficially. They're saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. They're saying, everything's fine, everything's fine, when things are not fine. And then look what he says next. He says, were they ashamed when they acted so abhorrently? They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. Therefore, they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. That's an interesting prophecy. That he's saying there are these people, and they're bad, they're wicked, they're doing the wrong thing. And then he seems to say, and you know what's even worse? They don't even feel bad about it. They're profiting dishonestly, every single one of them is, and they don't even feel bad about what they're doing. And it seems that God is saying, because they're doing the wrong thing and they don't even feel any shame about it, I will punish them. It seems as though when you take the passage as a whole, you're going, well, it seems like a certain amount of shame would have been good for them in retrospect, right? God seems to be saying there's a certain amount of feel bad they should have had. Here's another example from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, and this comes right after this paragraph where Paul has been, uh, he rebukes them for the sin of laziness, at least some of the people in the congregation. There were some people there who were able to work and they refused to work and they were mooching off everybody else rather than earning a living and he told them to stop it. And then after he says that, he says this. He says, and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person, okay? Notice the disobedient person and then look, don't associate with him so that he may be, what? Ashamed. Well, that's weird. If shame is something that is never good for any reason, why in the world is the Apostle Paul telling these Christians to shame this person, right? To not associate with them so that they may be ashamed, yet don't treat them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. If someone, who is, diso- if someone is disobeying the word of God, he says you need to pull back from them relation- relationally in such a way that they'll feel bad about what they've done. Well, why in the world would you make someone feel bad about something? Well, apparently there's a time to do that. And in fact, notice the reason that you are pulling away relationally and and trying to make them feel bad or be ashamed is not to hurt them. It's to do it for their good. Notice the very next verse. Yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In Paul's mind, he wasn't thinking, okay, this person's awful, they're an enemy, like, get them, don't associate with them in order to harm them. No, it's the re- you're going to shame them, but, but for the reason of helping them, the goal is to 
warn him as a brother. This is a brother-to-brother or brother-to-sister sort of thing where you go, I am concerned about you. The reason I'm changing things about our relationship is because I want you to see this is wrong and needs to be taken care of. So apparently there is something that could be called being ashamed in the Bible that is the appropriate emotion for a particular situation. You following with me so far? Okay, so let me go ahead and define my terms because I think that in a sermon like this, you've got to be real careful what you say because people can hear you saying something that you don't mean, right? So I think it's important for, for me to define the words and the way that I'm using the words so that you don't hear me saying something that I'm not trying to say. So what I'm going to do is let me just go ahead and start with defining the word guilt, okay? And this is the, the definition of guilt I'm going to be using for this sermon. The fact of having committed a breach of conduct, especially violating law and involving a penalty. Um, this is, I did not make up this definition. This is from the dictionary. You could probably tell, because that's not fun. I would, have, I would have definitely said it not so formally, right? But that is the definition from, if you go to Merriam-Webster online dictionary, that's what you'll find, okay? Guilt, the fact of having committed a breach of conduct, especially violating law and involving a penalty. This is the first definition that comes up in that dictionary, and pretty much with slightly different words, this is the first definition that comes up in any dictionary. They all have this as the number one definition of the word guilt. The fact of having committed a breach of conduct, okay? Now, I want you to notice the second word. Guilt is the what? The fact. The way that I'm using guilt in this sermon, and I want you to understand this, is guilt is a fact. It's not a feeling. Guilt is the word that's used to say this person did this. It's the way that this word is used in a courtroom, right? When you're in a courtroom, they use the word guilt or guilty or not guilty. In fact, I've heard it illustrated this way, that when the jury is there in the courtroom and they declare someone to be guilty, right, they are not declaring that we think they feel bad about what they've done, right? That's not what guilty means. Guilty means they did it. And same thing for not guilty. If they declare the person to be not guilty, they're not saying, we don't think that person feels bad about it. They're saying, no, we think the person didn't do it or may not have done it. So that's the word guilt. That's the way I'm going to be using the word in this um, sermon, okay? I realize there are other definitions of guilt, and that's fine. I realize there are times when we go around and we say things like, oh, I can't believe the way I talked to my mother-in-law last night. I feel so guilty. And we use it to describe an emotion, and that's perfectly fine. You can keep talking that way. I'm certainly not going to go around this church correcting you, okay? And in fact, if you look in a dictionary, this is the number one definition, but most of the time, one of the next definitions talks about this through the emotional that talks about guilt, the way we use the word when we're talking about an emotion. But the primary definition is guilt is the fact of having committed something, and I think it's helpful to have a word that means that, because that's a thing. It's true that we do things wrong, and that we have to have a word for that. So that's guilt. All right, next word I want to define for you is the word shame. Shame is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, okay, which is the fact of having committed a breach of conduct, a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Again, I did not write up this. This is not my own special special definition for you. This is from Merriam-Webster online. Shame, shame is a painful what? Emotion. Aha. So that's what we're talking about. This series is called Hard Feelings. So I'm using the word guilt and the word shame for the rest of the sermon, and what I'm saying is guilt is the fact, shame is the feeling. Okay? That's the way I'm going to be using the words. That's how I'm defining it. Guilt is the fact, shame is the feeling that comes from it. Right? I did a wrong thing. That's what guilt is. Shame is, okay, now this is the feeling I have because of the, the guilt, because of the thing that I did. So that's the way I'm going to be using the sermon, and using the words in this sermon. I realize that's different than other people, but I don't care. I feel pretty good about it. Like I did, it's not like these are special definitions I made up. These are like, if you don't like these definitions, sorry, they're like literally from the dictionary. So, guilt, shame. 
once they're defined this way, I think it's pretty obvious that shame is not only and always bad, right? Isn't it good when a person feels bad about doing something wrong and they turn away from their behavior? Hmm, you don't seem sure. All right, let me go ahead. Let me go ahead and use an extreme example, and then once I've used this one, I think you will understand that it's true, okay? So I just want you to consider this idea. Serial killers don't feel shame. Correct? Yes. Now, is that good? No, right? Serial killers, don't feel, serial killers don't feel shame, or at the very least, they don't feel enough shame, or they don't feel the right kind of shame, right? Because whatever emotion they're feeling, it is not painful enough to stop them from continuing to do it, which is why the word serial is in front of the, the noun, right? Because they keep doing it. They keep killing people, and that lack of shame is not a feature, it's a defect. So clearly, there can be a good kind of shame that pushes us to repent of our sins. There can be a good kind of shame. Again, I'm defining it with normal dictionary stuff here. There can be a good kind of shame that pushes us to make restitution when we've done something wrong. There can be a good kind of shame that pushes us to seek forgiveness from people who we have wronged. So with all of that in mind, I want to teach you 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. This will be our text for this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8. I'll just start reading it, and then I'll give you some context. It says, For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Let me pause right there. i got to give you some context here. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Corinth. All right? So 2 Corinthians. So this, this letter that they've written, and it's at least the second letter that he's written to them. And you can see that in this letter, he refers to some other letter that he wrote before 2 Corinthians. So I want to kind of explain the timeline of what's going on here with this context. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and there, would, there are a number of commentators and scholars who would say that the two books that we have in the Bible that we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are two out of perhaps a series of four or more letters that Paul wrote the Corinthians. Okay? A lot of people think there were at least four letters that he wrote them. And the reason why is because of the way that the letters are written. So let me just kind of explain the timeline. If you were to read the book of 1 Corinthians, just from beginning to end, what you would find out when you get to, I think it's chapter 5, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians that was before 1 Corinthians because he refers to that letter in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians couldn't be the first letter he wrote them because in that letter he refers to the last letter. In chapter 5, he talks about the fact that I have written to you that you would not associate with sexually immoral people. So then in 1 Corinthians, which is, a, which is a letter after that one, in fact, we need to give that one a name. So there's this letter that was before 1 Corinthians. I'm going to call it 0th Corinthians, all right? So you've got 0th Corinthians where he said, don't, don't associate with uh, sexually immoral people. And then you have 1 Corinthians, which came after it. And he says, let me explain what I meant by that, all right? And he follows up more with 1 Corinthians, which must be at least the second letter. Then we have another book that we call 2 Corinthians. Was that the one right after 1 Corinthians? Eh, maybe not. Because in 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to a letter that was written before 2 Corinthians, but the letter he refers to does not seem to be 1 Corinthians. Because the letter seems to be this like, um, sort of almost like a harsh rebuke on them. That, that he wrote them some letter about what they were doing wrong and how they needed to repent. And 1 Corinthians doesn't seem to fit the bill for that. That there would be some other letter. So it almost looks like there was a 0th Corinthians. Then there's 1 Corinthians. Then there was probably a 1 and a half Corinthians. And then there's 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is now referring to a letter that's probably not 1 Corinthians, probably some other letter that was written in the meantime. And theologians and commentators and people like that sometimes call the letter that I'm calling one and a half Corinthians, sometimes they call it the severe letter. 
Okay? That's the, the, and, and, and they would say, we don't have the severe letter. But the way that Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians, there must have been a severe letter that was written. He really got on to them and said something sort of severe that hurt their feelings and made them cry. And then he writes this letter. So maybe possibly the fourth letter that he wrote them. And he says this. For even if I grieved you with my letter, some letter that he wrote them earlier, I do not regret it. Isn't that interesting? I, I sent you a letter. It hurt your feelings. I'm glad. Okay? I'm glad I hurt your feelings. I heard it, was, I heard it upset you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. All right? For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. But then look, he says, even though I did regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. So he's saying at the end of the story, I realize, okay, you were upset. I, I, I offended you. It bothered you. You, were, you cried. You were grieving. I made you feel bad. But only for a little while. Then you got on board. Then you did what you were supposed to do. So I don't regret it. If I grieved you with my letter, that's fine. I'm glad it worked out the way it did. But he says, but there was a point where I did regret it. There was a point where I sent that letter out and I heard that it hurt your feelings and I heard that you all felt bad and then I felt bad. Right? There was a moment that I did regret. There was a moment where I sent that letter and then and maybe, I don't know, have you ever done this before? And you went, oh, maybe I shouldn't have. Too late. I already pressed the reply all. Right? And so I think that's what's going on here. I think that he's saying, I sent you this letter, and then there was a point where I heard about what happened, and I went, oh, maybe I should have phrased it differently. Maybe I should have not said it that way. And then, as the story went on, you guys did exactly what I was hoping you would do. You repented, and I'm very glad that I sent the letter. So, he says, now I rejoice. Now that I know how the story ended, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance, Okay? I'm happy that you were sad, but not be I'm not happy because you were sad. It's not like I'm happy when you're sad. I'm happy that you had the kind of sadness that led to repentance. Repentance being a word that means like to change your mind or to change your ways, to change your behavior. That you would go, this is the way I was going. Nope, I'm going to do a totally different thing now. That's repent. So he's saying, I am now glad, not that you were sad for no reason. I'm glad that your grief led to Repentance. The word here is not shame, but I think that seems to be what he's referring to. He's referring to some sort of painful, grieving feeling that caused them to change what they were doing, change their position, change their behavior, what they were doing. And so he, then he says, for you were grieved as God willed. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever considered the fact that God could have, like there could be a godly kind of grief, that you could feel grief and it's God's will for you to feel it, that is going to be very surprising for people who believe that it is God's will for you to be happy, happy, happy all the time. He says, no, there was a bad feeling you had, but it was the good kind of bad feeling that you had, as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. You started going, oh, we regret that, let's do something different. And he said, and that's so good that that happened. Because, and again, it's not like, so that you, so, because I was so mad at you and I hoped it would hurt you, right? No, so that you didn't experience any loss. I wanted you to feel just enough bad that it would be good for you. I didn't want you to experience any loss from us. I assume he's talking about his relationship with them there. And I'm glad that this all worked out. I'm glad that you repented in such a way that we're back together again. Because you got to remember, at the time this was written, there's no New Testament yet. Christianity is super early on. These people's access to the truth about God but probably the vast majority of it would have been through Paul. Like, how are they going to know what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to believe about God? Paul's their guy. And so he's saying, I'm so glad that we didn't get cut off. I'm so glad you repented and you did not experience any loss from us. And then look at the next verse, verse 10. For godly grief 
Isn't that an interesting phrase? For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted. It produces a change of your ways not to be gone back to and do the old way. It produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation. That we see that there's repentance and then there's salvation. And this is something we see throughout Scripture, and I think we see this in kind of multiple ways. Sometimes we talk about repentance and salvation in sort of a one-time way when someone comes to know Jesus, right? You've got somebody, they're not a Christian, and then they turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they repent. They turn from their ways. They turn from their loyalty to their sin or to Satan or to you know, their own behaviors or their own you know, worship of their self or their own, I'm going to do it my way. And they turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they are saved. Jesus saves them, and they, and they become one of His, and they can live with Him forever. But I think it's also true that there is a repentance that leads to a salvation, even for those of us like after we've come to know Jesus. That after you believe in Jesus and you repented and were saved, you continue to sin and you continue to repent and you continue, God continues to save you from the power of your sin. And so he says there is a godly grief, there is some kind of shame, some kind of sorrow, some kind of painful feeling that produces a good kind of change that brings salvation into your life. And then look, it says, but worldly grief produces death. Oh, so there is a toxic shame. There is a toxic shame, right? There is some kind of grief that's not godly grief. There's some kind of grief that's worldly grief that produces death. Apparently, it is not true that just any time you feel bad about something, oh, and I, I wish I hadn't done that. It's not true that every time you feel bad, it's good for you. No, there is a toxic shame. There is a worldly grief that produces death. I think one of the best examples of this in the Scripture is Peter and Judas. If you don't know the story of Peter and Judas, I'm going to just briefly tell it to you. Peter and, Jesus, uh, Peter and Judas were two of Jesus' followers. And each of them did something bad the night before Jesus was crucified. Okay? Jesus was crucified one day. The day before, Peter and Judas both messed up real bad. Peter denied knowing Jesus, and he did it three times. He disowned him. He just said, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm not even a follower of that guy. It was at the time where Jesus was being um, tried, like he was at trial, and it looked like things were not going the right way. Jesus was incredibly unpopular at that moment. And Peter was concerned, I, probably for his own life. I don't want to get lumped in with whatever Jesus is about to go through. And so when people said to him, do you, aren't you one of his followers? Three different times he said, I don't even know that guy. I swear, never met that guy. And then after he did it three times, just like Jesus predicted he would do it three times, he felt terrible about what he did. Did you know that? He felt ashamed. The Bible doesn't use the word ashamed, but that's what it is. It says after that third time, he went out and wept bitterly. He felt terrible about it. What's interesting, though, is that same night, Judas also did something terrible. Judas betrayed Jesus. For 30 pieces of silver, he helped this group of people who wanted to kill Jesus find him that night. And after Judas betrayed Jesus, this is very interesting, he also felt bad. Did you know that was part of the story? Judas felt terrible about what he did too. He felt awful about it. The book of Matthew specifically says, after it happened, Judas felt remorse. But here's the thing. What kind of grief was it? Was it godly grief or was it worldly grief? I think it was because worldly grief because you look at what happened next. Judas felt terrible. But did he repent? Did he trust in God and ask him for forgiveness? No, the next thing he, Matthew says, if I remember correctly, he goes and commits suicide. 
So it seems to me Peter has this godly grief. He has a kind of grief that produces repentance because Peter does not keep disowning Jesus. Peter follows Jesus for the rest of his days. But Judas, who also felt terrible about what he'd done, went and killed himself, which matches with worldly grief produces death. And so I would look at this and go, yeah, so obviously there is a healthy kind of shame and a toxic kind of shame. Obviously there is a, I feel bad and I'm going to turn to Jesus, and there is a, I feel bad and it's going to destroy me. Now, I also believe that there are some other things that could be called toxic shame, and I just want to cover some of those, because especially if anytime you're in a sermon, especially in our culture, where you say anything pop, pop, like just a little positive about shame, like shame could be good. You're, there are people that are going to go, but what about, but what about, but what about, what about, what about? And so I just want to cover some of the what abouts, because I think that there are other things, even other than Judas's suicide, that could be things that we would call toxic shame. I, just, I wrote down three in my notes. There may be more, but I wrote down this. I said, there, there's a, you can have a shame or a grief over something that isn't actually a sin. Have you ever seen this before? That someone that has experiences shame or they experience some kind of grief over something that they've done, but the thing that they've done is not even wrong. No one's seen this before? Right, where somebody, have you never seen someone apologize? And you're like, I am so sorry. And you're sitting there going like, I don't even think that was wrong. Why are you apologizing? Like you just gave your opinion. They even asked for your opinion. You know, like why in the world just, I mean, yeah, I realize they got all bent out of shape, but what are you apologizing for? That's not a sin. Have you ever seen this before? Or have you ever talked with somebody and they go, I just feel so terrible about what I've done. And you say, well, what was it? And they tell you and you're like, oh. like there's not even a verse in the Bible that says that that's bad. And they go, yeah, but my mom said it is. Okay. But, but like the Bible doesn't even say that's wrong. In the first service, there was someone, when I said my mom said it is, there was a guy over there that went, well, then it was wrong. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, your opinion of your mom might be a wee bit too high. <laughs> so, but there, aren't there times where you say to someone, the Bible doesn't even forbid that. Why do you feel bad about it? So I think that there, I don't know what you call that, maybe misplaced shame, a shame for something that's not wrong. Okay, here's another one. I think you can have shame or grief over a sin that is a real sin, and you really did it, but it's been pardoned. Can you imagine someone who feels terrible about a sin, but the sin has been forgiven? It's been pardoned. I think that this can happen between, um, like, from human-to-human relationships. I definitely think it can happen in our relationship with God. You can imagine in a human-human relationship, you have somebody that says to somebody else, like, I'm so sorry about what I did. Will you forgive me? And the other person says, I forgive you. And then the next day, they go, I'm really sorry about what I did. Will you forgive me? And they go, yeah, I forgive you. And then the third day, they go, I'm really, really sorry. Will you forgive me? And they're like, I, are, like, I really did forgive you the first two times. Like, you don't have to keep asking. And imagine the person keeps doing it for like another month. Like, at some point, the forgiver is going to go like, I, it seems like you don't even believe me. Like, our relationship is starting to break down now. Like, I meant it the first 30 times. Can we move on? And I think that can definitely happen with our relationship with God. That he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So that we, when we repent of those sins, we are forgiven. We're freed of those sins. But yet some of us, upon, Jesus literally says, I do not count that against you. you didn't, it's, like, it's like you didn't do it. I paid for it. That debt has been paid. It is no longer there. I forgive you. And then we go, okay, thank you. And then we waller in our shame for just a little longer. 
I know you say I'm forgiven, but I just need to feel bad about it. I need to punish myself a little bit more because your death on the cross was not quite good enough to take care of that. I need to punish myself a little bit more. No, if God says you're not condemned, you need to believe him. Let me show that to you in just Romans chapter 8. This is such a fantastic verse. It's very famous. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Look what it says. Therefore, no, what's the word? Condemnation. There's no condemnation. No condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. The people who are united to Jesus, the people that are followers of him, they're forgiven. Their sins are not counted against them. They are not condemned. If you are not condemned, you should live as a person who's not condemned. Because God says, you're not condemned. And my opinion is the only opinion that matters. All right, let me show you one more that I think is a type of toxic shame. I think there are times when people have shame or grief over something, that they, like over a sin that they didn't do, but someone did to them. I think there are people who feel shame or whatever word you want to call it, grief, some kind of humiliation or degradation because of a sin, not a sin that they committed, but rather a sin that was committed upon them. Is that a thing? Yes, that's for real. And I don't think every sin is like this. Like, I don't think always, every single time someone sins against you, it causes you to feel like guilty or, or whatever the right word is, shameful, dirty. I don't think it's always the case, but I think there are certain sins that are like especially good at causing that. Sexual sins are one of them. I've heard this a lot of times with rape. That someone is raped, and then they now feel bad, but they, it's, it's like this, like they didn't do it. They didn't, they didn't choose to do it. Someone did it to them. They would not have chosen to do it. They were against the idea. Someone sinned against them, and yet they feel like dirty or somehow that like they're stained, somehow that they're like less valuable than they were before. And they didn't even choose to do anything. Like they didn't do it. Someone else made the choice for them. And, but yet they go, wow, I feel like I'm less valuable than I was. No, like morally, I feel like I'm morally d- dirtier than I was. No, you didn't do anything wrong in that situation. And so some people I think have this burden upon them. And I guess I, I just wanted to say something to you because I, and, and and I, I don't think it's just rape. I think it could be broader than that. And sometimes I think it can even go all the way back into childhood. You've probably seen this before with like just there are people that have been abused maybe by their parents or some other relative and you would say wow they have been like harboring this shame this humiliation this I'm not going to tell anybody that that happened it's something that makes me feel like I'm less worthy like I'm like I matter less than other people so I'm just I'm going to not tell anybody about that I'm going to hope nobody notices and they carry that shame or whatever you want to call it all the way into adulthood and maybe it can be called shame maybe we need a different word for it you know, like humiliation or degradation, or maybe shame just needs to have multiple definitions. But they have this like burden that's upon them from someone else's sin. And this is the thing I want to explain to you. I, w- I want to say something that... Okay, in a room this size, there are going to be uh, several people that fit the description of what I'm describing. There are going to be several, of, several people in this room that have been sexually assaulted or physically abused or, or you know, whatever that happened with your parents or your uncle or the way that your mom treated you or the way that your dad treated you or the way that whatever that ex-boyfriend treated you. And so I just, I, I want to say something to you. It's not anything magical. It's just something that I think is true and I want you to hear it said out loud. It's probably something that, it may be something you already even know. 
It's not even new information I'm going to give you. But I think sometimes what I'm about to say, you need to hear it, and maybe you need to hear it from someone who is a stranger to the situation. You need to hear it from someone who is like kind of an unbiased third party. And so I'm telling you, whether it was when you were an adult, whether it was when you were a kid, if there was someone who sinned against you, against your will, and you've had this burden ever since, I just want you to hear someone say this out loud, and I'm the person I guess God picked to be the one that says it this morning. Please hear this. If you were sinned against, if somebody sinned against you, that was not your fault. You are not responsible for their sin. If you have had this burden, I can't believe this happened. I don't want anyone to know. I feel humiliated. I feel like I'm less valuable than I was. I feel awful. I feel dirty. I feel stained. I just want you to know, if, if you didn't do if someone did it to you, that was not your fault. And that burden that you're carrying, if any of it is kind of like a burden of guilt, I, I hope that you can get out from under it. Because remember the word guilt, the way I'm using it in this sermon, is the fact of having done something wrong. So if you did not do the thing wrong, if someone else did the thing wrong, then I hope you can get out from under that burden because that burden is not yours to bear. It's, it's literally not your guilt. It is 100% their responsibility. And so if you had someone in your life and you just... They were supposed to be someone that loved you. They were supposed to be someone that you were to trust. They were supposed to be someone that looked out for you. Maybe they were an authority over you. And they betrayed you. They harmed you. They treated you like you don't matter. To the point that you started thinking, well, maybe I don't matter. And I just, want you to, I, just, I just want you to hear me say, you do matter. You absolutely matter. Their guilt has nothing to do with your with you, like that, that burden is not yours to carry. Of course, there are negative emotions that are attached to it. We're always going to have negative, painful emotions when bad things happen to us. But I'm just saying the guilt isn't yours. I, I hope that that's helpful for somebody this morning. In fact, let me just pray real quick. God, I just ask that you would use those words for good in someone's life this morning, that someone would walk out of here free going, you know what, there's a burden, there's someone else's burden I've been carrying. And I don't, I don't, I now realize that's not mine. So I pray that you would free them. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray today would be a new day for them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have one more thing to say. Don't think just because I prayed that means the sermon's over. That was like a that was like a mid-sermon prayer. I got one more point. So what do we do about shame? What do we do about shame? And and I'm specifically talking about what do we do about the kind of shame that stems from the stuff we actually did? Right? What do you do about your shame that comes from your guilt? Right? Because I just said there are people in this room, I'm sure, that have felt terrible about things other people have done to them, and you're actually innocent of that wrongdoing. But even though you're innocent of that wrongdoing, it is not true that you are innocent of all wrongdoing. Right? All have sinned. So, what do you do with the shame that comes from the things you've actually done? Your own wrongdoings. And so this is what I think the answer is. Repent and be saved. What do you do about your own shame, the painful feelings that come from your guilt? Repent 
and be saved. And I get this from our verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at verse 10 one more time. We looked at it earlier. Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance. That's what's supposed to happen, right? A repentance, a turning away from it, a repentance not to be regretted, one, a repentance not, that's not to be turned away from, and leading to salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that it would be like you're not a sinner, that you would be treated like someone who did not sin. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life like you and I were supposed to live, and then died on the cross. And he died on the cross not for his own sins, because he did not have any. He died on the cross for the sins of people like me and people like you. He died in our place to pay our debt, to take sins and say, okay, they were paid for. They were cursed. They were judged. It was paid for. And so now that I've paid for them, I can look to my people whose sins I've paid for, and I can say, you're forgiven. You are pardoned. And so the people who believe in Jesus Christ, we turn from our sins, we believe in Jesus, and as, as resurrected Lord, we recognize he is our Lord and Savior. And then he says to us, I do not count your sins against you. The, the page is blank, erased. You, you are forgiven. You are righteous in my sight. I do not count your sins against you. That's what we do about our shame. Like you repent and be saved. By repent, I mean you admit that you are a sinner. You acknowledge that your guilt is real and you turn from your sins to Jesus as Savior. You realize all have sinned and you are part of that all. And this, I just think this is so important. And you, you, you have to acknowledge that your, your guilt is real. Because your shame is real. You already know that. You know the shame is real because you feel it. There's real shame. You know that. But the real shame can, comes from guilt. Like there's actual guilt. And so the solution to shame cannot be denying our guilt. And I think that that is a real tempting thing to do. I think it's real tempting to go, I have committed wrongdoing. I now have these bad feelings about the wrongdoing. I, I don't want to keep feeling the bad feelings. I got to do something about them. So I'm going to deny that that happened. I'm going to pretend that never happened. I'm going to look at that and go, I didn't do it. Or I'm going to look at it and I'm going to go, that's not really wrong. I'm going to recategorize it as not wrong. Or I'm going to recategorize it as, um, like, well, it was wrong, but like, considering what I was going through and all the factors, it wasn't wrong for me. Or it was wrong, but like, it wasn't as wrong as like, everybody else. Like, goodness gracious, everybody else is wronger. Okay? And so I will take care of my shame by kind of denying my guilt or pretending it's not there. No, 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 no. Let your shame push you to Jesus Christ as your Savior. And when he forgives you, like when Jesus saves you, when you become one of his and he saves you, he forgives you of your sins. You got to get this. He removes your shame by removing your guilt Right? The shame is the feeling, the guilt is the fact. He goes in there, grabs the fact, and says, no longer a fact, I don't count it. Debt has been paid, forgiven, pardoned. He removes the guilt. And then the shame can go on the same bus. Isn't that great? All right, this is uh, just one more verse. You need, you, you need one more. You need one more. Colossians chapter 2, I want you to, this is the last thing I'm going to explain to you today. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Look at what this says. It says, and when you were dead in trespasses, okay, he's talking to people who are now Christians, but he's talking about back before they knew Jesus. When you were dead in trespasses, when you were spiritually dead because of your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, I think that is a, like a Hebrew expression, a Hebrewism for 
apart from the people of God, okay, separate from the family of God. When you were dead spiritually in your sins and you were not on God's team, not part of God's family, and then you came to know Jesus, look what happens. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That is good news. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this truth. I thank you so much that you have allowed me to be someone who in this time, in this place, in this county, in this particular year, for whatever reason you saw fit, you let me be the person who gets up here a lot of times and declare your good news. And it's so great. I'm so thankful that I don't have to get up here and say, you're all bad, you're all condemned, end of story. Thank you so much that you would come and remove our guilt and remove our shame and declare to us that we are not condemned. And I pray that you would help us to be people who believe you, that we would be people that go, okay, if you say I'm not condemned, I'm going to act like that's true. I pray for those of us who deal with like misplaced shame and things that we think are wrong and they're not. I pray you'd help us as we understand God's word. You would shape our conscience to match your word. I pray for those of us who have gone through like horrific things at the hand of someone else that we would not believe that we bear their guilt. I pray that you would free us from that. I pray you'd help us to walk in newness of life. I pray you'd help us to take responsibility for the sins that we have committed, but not take responsibility for them in the sense of like having to pay for them. I thank you so much that you're willing to pay for them. So I pray you'd give us the right kind of shame, the healthy kind of shame. I pray that we would feel bad about our sins, but I pray we would feel bad about our sins for just a little while. And then turn to you and be de-shamed, be uncondemned, and live with you forever. And it just we thank you for that. We, what a gift. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.